0: Well, hey, hello, church. Uh, again, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you could, grab your Bibles and turn them open to Colossians chapter 3. And as you're finding your way there, by way of reminder, uh, we're in the middle of a series titled Gospel Saturated, and it's the heartbeat of this series to kind of unpack our desire to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships Uh, That's what we are about here in the Hallows Church. We want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. So we're taking some time over the course of this series to kind of unpack what that means, to kind of get our hearts to wrap around that vision of seeing lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. And this starts, uh, I think this whole process, this whole desire begins to be fulfilled when you and I find our lives saturated by the gospel. And so we're looking at Colossians chapter 3 over the past... To, this is the third week now, unpacking different facets of your life being saturated by the gospel of Jesus. So, we began, if you remember, by talking about taking the gospel in and letting the gospel give shape to our identity. And we said that the essence of Christianity is is about being united with Christ. It's not simply assenting to the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but it's consenting to that reality. It is believing it in a life-changing capacity so that your life is being defined by that reality. But then last week, we went one step further and said, uh, gospel-saturated life, though yes, it begins by taking the gospel in, it continues and it develops as you and I learn to think the gospel through. As we begin to meditate upon the gospel and marinate in the gospel, if you will, and we allow the gospel to give guidance to our daily activities, discerning what difference Jesus makes in every aspect of our lives, that is an aspect of gospel saturation. So we take it in, we think it through, and then tonight we're kind of moving one step further, and we're saying that in order to be gospel saturated disciples of Jesus, men and women who are trusting in the gospel, it moves in the direction of now. We want to talk about turning the gospel out. So we take it in, we think it through, and we turn it out. And this is what the passage that was read for us a moment ago is really driving after: this idea of turning the gospel out. And this is where uh, Paul begins in verse twelve, kind of driving in this direction. And and you'll notice there's another connection word, there's another logic word there. Therefore, it's telling you to look back to what he has just written before moving forward and. If you remember from last week, we talked about there are things, as we think the gospel through, that need to be put to death in our lives, that need to be put off, out of our lives. And now he's getting into some of the positive upswing of that. The reason we want to put that stuff off or put that type of stuff to death is because we want to put on things that are remarkable. We want to put on the life of the kingdom. We want to put on the character of Christ. And so this is where Paul begins to move in verse 12 giving flesh and giving some, putting some teeth to this whole idea of turning the gospel out. But notice what he did, does. Before he jumps into all the things that you and I are to put on in our character and that we are to put on in our relationship with Jesus, notice he comes back to the theme of identity. He says, therefore, and then he gives you a brief description of our a Christian self-understanding, saying this is who you are. Paul never wants to wander too far away from Christian identity or Christian self-understanding when he's calling us to live a certain way or to do certain things. It's always rooted in who we are and what God declares about us. And so this is what he says in verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, these remarkable descriptions of the Christian identity, of our self-understanding, this is where turning the gospel out begins. And what's remarkable about the language used there is that this, that's the same language that characterized Israel's self-understanding in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, this is how Israel is described. Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was God's holy people. Israel's was God's beloved or dearly loved people. That was the language that described God's kids in the Old Testament. Then when you get into the gospel, guess who that language is describing in the gospels? Jesus. You get into the first start of Jesus' ministry, and what happens is Jesus is baptized, and as he is coming out of the water, a voice from heaven comes out and, and speaks, and what does that voice say? The voice says, this is my beloved son. This is my dearly loved one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do what he says. So we move from Israel to Jesus, and then as you get into the New Testament, what happens is those designations, those characteristics are then applied to the church those of us who put our faith in Jesus, those of us who are united with Christ in his crucifixion and his resurrection, all of a sudden our self-understanding is elevated. And what God used to say about Israel in the Old Testament, what God said about Jesus in the Gospels, is what God is saying about you and I in this space right now. God is looking at our lives and he's saying, I want you to understand that you are chosen. And that is a powerful word to, to consider you being Chosen. Now, for some of you, that might not sound very powerful because maybe the whole idea of being chosen by God is kind of raising up some PTSD in your life because maybe you went out for the basketball team in junior high and it didn't go well. You know, you wasn't able to impress your coach into picking you, into choosing you to be a part of the team. You weren't as fast as the other people. You weren't as tall as the other people. You weren't as athletic as the other players. And so you didn't get chosen in that moment. You got rejected. Well, if that's your instinct, if, you want, if you're kind of having a little PTSD in this moment right now, uh, when you hear the language of election or choosing or being chosen in the Bible, understand, understand that that language is always fueled by the grace of God and his choice of men and women to be a part of his family, his choice of men and women to be drawn into relationship with himself has nothing to do with whether or not they have impressed him with their lifestyle. He chooses us not because we have impressed him with our religious rhythms and our morality. He chooses us sheerly by his grace and according to the love that he has fixed upon us. This is exactly what God would say of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 7, there's this moment where God is clarifying their self-understanding, not wanting them to get cocky because they were chosen. In fact, he kind of puts them in their place in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, but why? Not because you were more numerous than all the other peoples. Not because you were a greater nation than all the other nations on the planet. You weren't more numerous than them. You weren't more powerful than them. That's not why God chose you. In fact, the exact opposite is true. He says, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. See, God's choice in this moment, and if you are a follower of Christ, you are so because God's choice came upon you. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian in this moment, God's choice, God's calling is being extended to you with the words that I'm speaking tonight. And that call, that choice is a call and a choice that comes to us by grace according to the ridiculous love that he has for his people. And so when you hear this language, when it comes to your self-understanding as a Christian, it starts with you believing that you are a loved person, that you are a wanted person, that you are an accepted person. That's a remarkable reality to revel in. But then he moves from chosen into this word holy. And that word holy may strike you as odd, because I doubt many of you have holy kind of sketched into your LinkedIn profile or anywhere of your other social media dynamics. You're probably not leading with your front foot in relationships. Hey, I'm a holy man, I'm a holy woman. It's probably not where you're going, but if you are in Christ, God sees you as a holy person. And that word holy means to be set apart, it means to be sacred, it means to be special, it means to be significant. It's a word given to God's children in this world because God's children are to reflect his holiness to the watching world this is what you read in first peter chapter 1 verse 15 verses 15 and 16 but as the one who called you that is God the one who called you is holy you also are to be holy in all your conduct for it is written be holy because I am holy live a special life live a sacred life live an elevated life your life, there's there's a distinct flavor to your life because you have been called and chosen as a holy people, as a holy person. It's a remarkable, remarkable description. Then you keep going in the passage, and what else does he say? He says, not only are you chosen, not only are you holy, he also says you are dearly loved. Don't you love that language? Some of your translations may say beloved, that you were beloved by God. You are his dearly loved child. Again, reminding the Christian, their self-understanding centers on the love that God has for us, that this is the language God used in reference to his children, in reference to his kids. He did so with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He used this language when talking about Jesus in the Gospels, and he's using this language of you tonight. You are loved. So if we're going to talk about turning the Gospel out, we need to kind of get this square in our hearts. We need to receive and kind of revel in these realities this is our self-understanding. This is who we are by God's grace in Christ. But I know there are some of us who have a hard time kind of accepting these truths and believing these truths and resting in these truths because so many Christians have a hard time with, their, with understanding who they are in Christ, and they suffer for what's Many might be described as an identity crisis. We just don't know these are true about us, and we have a hard time believing them because there are days when we don't feel very wanted, and we don't feel very special, and we don't feel very loved. We're a lot like Simba in The Lion King. If you're familiar with that movie, you know that Simba belonged to a royal family, and because of who his daddy was, he had a special role to play in the kingdom. But you know, there was a moment where things kind of went south in his life, and he lost his dad, and, and he felt a lot of guilt and regret over how his dad died, and so he fled from his identity, he bailed on his family, and he went and hung out in the wilderness playing with a warthog and a muskrat or some other strange little cat, and, and they were, they're out in the wilderness eating bugs, doing those things. All the while, Simba is wasting his days, he's wasting his life, he's not living out who he was, who he was supposed to be. But then there was one day where he met a monkey, Right? A monkey came along and kind of led him to a pool of water. And I'm kind of like the monkey tonight. I want to remind you of kind of who your identity, take you to the pool where you can see who you are. Well, this monkey would lead Simba to this pool of water. And there he caught a vision of his father. And Mufasa showed up in that moment. And you remember what Mufasa said to Simba? He said, Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba was like, nah, I didn't forget you. I know exactly who you are. You were my dad. You were my father. How could I forget Mufasa? How How could I forget you? And then Mufasa responded saying, Simba, you have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. When a Christian forgets who they are, it's because they've forgotten who their God is. An identity crisis is always a deity crisis. It's a God crisis. It's a, I have forgotten who my God is and what my God is like. God declares his people in this world, you are chosen, you are holy, you are dearly loved. This is who you are. Don't forget it. You are chosen by God of grace. You are loved by God of remarkable affections. You are holy as your heavenly Father is holy. This is who you are. This is where turning the gospel out begins. And so we kind of want to have that self-understanding in our minds before we jump into the the virtues or the graces or the descriptors that are put on in verse 12. Because a verse would go on and say, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on. And then he lists out five graces, And the language there is kind of like putting on clothes. I want you to put these graces on. I want you to dress yourself in these realities. It's as though Paul is saying that once you understand who you are, then you've got to dress accordingly. And the dress that you put on, these clothes that you put on are these remarkable graces that correspond to your identity. Last Saturday, I was asked to officiate a wedding. I was chosen to officiate this wedding, and I showed up. And you know that weddings are sacred occasions. They're unique occasions. They are holy occasions. A wedding ceremony uh, in the church is unlike any other day or any other time in your life. It's just a unique moment where a a man and a woman are coming together to form a covenant, a union, establish a marital relationship. And they're joined by all of their loved ones. Everyone is there. and, And it's a special day. Had I shown up last week at the wedding wearing what I normally wear on a Saturday... They would have turned me away and not have believed I was who I claimed to be. Normally on a Saturday, if you were to come to my house, you're going to see me sporting sweatshorts and flip-flops. My hair's not going to be calm. I'm going to be looking kind of run down on a Saturday. But I couldn't just walk out of my house and step into that wedding environment in that way. Why? Because that dress didn't fit the occasion. That attire wouldn't have been true to who I was as the wedding officiant. And so what happens? I had to, I had to take a shower which I don't always do on Saturdays. I had to get cleaned up. I had to change my clothes. I had to put on dress that fit my identity as the officiant of that wedding. This is essentially what Paul is telling us in verse 12. Recognize who you are and dress accordingly. And then he lays out these five incredible graces. And these five graces are so powerfully rich because each one of them can be traced and and discerned operative in the life and ministry of Jesus, every one of them. So when he says, put on these graces, essentially what he's telling the Christian, look, I want you to to dress yourself up in the character of Christ, that the way you're going to turn the gospel out is being like Jesus. You think about these graces. The first one listed there is the word compassion. That's a powerful word, a powerful descriptor. It's an emotionally charged word. It's the type of emotion that Jesus felt in Matthew chapter 9 when he was approaching a city and he saw a sea of humanity in front of him. And as he looked out upon the crowd in Matthew 9, 36, it said he felt compassion for them. He was punched in the gut by the needs before him because the people he was looking at were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when he saw that sea of brokenness, that sea of lostness, it affected him deeply like a punch in the gut. That's the emotional Emotionally charged dynamic that compassion is, and here we are being told as followers of Jesus, if we're going to turn the gospel out, who, if we understand who we are, we we are to put on compassion. In other words, we are to live our lives not with our head in the sand, ignoring the needs around us, not living a life of escapism where we're not confronting the brokenness of the world around us. Instead, we're, we're exposing ourselves to the world so that we can see needs around us and hopefully, by God's grace, be punched in the gut so that it would bother us enough to take action. You see, another dynamic behind the word compassion is that Not simply, is it; it's not just an emotional reaction, it's a practical reaction. That when you feel compassion, it's going to compel you to do something about the needs that you're aware of or the brokenness that is before you. That's the dynamic here. That's Christian compassion. And when Paul is writing this to the church at Colossae, understand that he's writing in a culture and in a context that was quite merciless. The first century Hellenistic world was not a compassionate place. The sick, the elderly, kids in large part, the mentally handicapped animals, you name it, uh, there wasn't a lot of compassion and mercy showed people who weren't strong, who weren't fit, who weren't popular, and who weren't successful. It wasn't a compassionate place. And so when the gospel gave birth to the church and the church began to turn the gospel out, what they were turning out was the reality of Christ's likeness, and that changed everything. This is why a guy by the name of William Barclay would make this comment on the historical developments that occurred in the first century. He said this, he says, it is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the elderly, the sick, the weak in body, and mind, and in mind, animals, children, and women has been done through the inspiration of Christianity. We are a compassionate people because we worship a compassionate Savior. That's one of the verses. we want to. That's one of the virtues we want to dress ourselves up in. But then he moves from compassion to a second one. What does he say there? He moves from compassion to kindness. And this word kindness is a beautiful word. It, it was a word used to describe what happens to wine over time. You know, if you, if you pop open a bottle of wine too early, it can have a little bite to it. It has a little teeth to it. It, it can be kind of sharp. But over time, wine can mellow out. It it becomes more mellow the more it matures and the more it ages. This is what kindness does for us. Kindness essentially takes the edge off our lives. Kindness takes the teeth out of our mouths so we're not just biting people all the time. And you see this kindness being demonstrated in Jesus in the sense that he was aware of the people around him and he was considerate of other people's needs, how they were feeling, how they were being treated, how they must have viewed themselves. And so he always acted in kind ways towards those around him. One beautiful example of this is found in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is sharing a meal with a Pharisee named Simon. And they're at a table eating together, and Simon was a religious Pharisee. He was considered, by all accounts, to be a good man. But while they were sharing this meal, this woman enters the room, and she's not named. She's just described. We do not know her by name, but we know her by reputation, as she is described as a sinful woman. And this sinful woman wanted to honor Jesus, wanted to respect Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus, and she begins to wash his feet and while she's washing his feet, Simon, this good man, this Pharisee, this religious guy across the table seeing this, and he's kind of bothered by it, and he actually lashes out. And he says something very undignified uh, towards, about this woman, saying, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman was washing his feet, he would never let that happen. Speaking harshly of her. But Jesus responded, He responded by looking directly at this woman and actually treating her with dignity, saying, look, your sins are forgiven. And he lifts her up and he speaks to her and about her in a way that should have elevated her dignity in the eyes of all those who were watching that scene unfold. You see, the difference between Jesus and Simon wasn't their goodness. It was their kindness, Simon was good or considered good by everybody in society. He was a morally upright guy. He didn't do a lot of bad things, but goodness isn't the same thing as kindness. Jesus was kind. Jesus saw this woman. Jesus loved this woman. Jesus forgave this woman. Jesus dignified this woman. That's what we do when we put on kindness. We become aware of everyone around us, and we treat people with dignity. We treat people with sincerity. We treat people with the grace of the kingdom. But then you move on from kindness, and the next word there is a very remarkable word coming out of the first century. It's the word humility. It's been said before that humility is a virtue created by Christianity. Humility was never viewed as something honorable or something to aspire to in the first century. You can read ancient Greek literature, classic literature, and and the word humility will come up in that literature, but it's never used in a positive sense. It always shows up in a derogatory uh, negative, with negative connotations. But here, Jesus in the Gospels and, and later the New Testament church would take this, this word, this virtue that was one time, at once considered a vice and calls it basically the chief virtue of Christianity. It's a virtue created by the gospel and carried out in the church. Now, when you think about the word that's translated humility there, there's a couple of aspects to it for you to think about. On one hand, that word uh, speaks to this reality that you and I, if we're going to be humble men and women, if we're going to clothe ourselves in humility, we must kind of know our place in the world. We've got to kind of know our place. And by knowing our place, I mean this, I mean you are not the creator. You are the created. And when you see yourself as being a creature and not the creator, that helps you know your place in the world. But then you go one step further and you say, yes, okay, I'm created by God, but I'm not the only one God created. God created a lot of other people too. And when God created us, he created us in his image. So knowing your place means that you are now living shoulder to shoulder with a sea of human beings, all who've been created by God and been endowed with his image. And so what that does in humility, when we know our place, it means that we're never going to relate to other people in ways that, that give the impression that we think we're superior to them. We're not above anyone. We're beside everyone. And then at the same time, it means we're not going to relate to other people in ways that would be inferior to others. Because we're not below anyone. We're uh, We're all creatures having been created by God. We've all been endowed with the dignity of the divine image. We are image bearers. So we're not superior to any other human beings, nor are we inferior to any human beings. We're humble people who know our place. But not only does humility say you got to know your place, there's another dynamic to it where you and I begin to accept our place. Or not just know it, but accept, sorry, not place, but accept our assignment, accept the role that we are to play in the world. One example of this as it relates to humility is found in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable uh, called the parable of the talents. And he tells a story about a master who had three servants, and he gave each one of his servants uh, a certain number of talents. To one servant, he gave one talent. To another servant, he gave two. To another servant, he gave five. He didn't give all of them an equal number of talents. And so you hear that, and you might think, well, that seems kind of discriminatory. Why do some people get five talents, and why does others get two, and others get one? Well, a humble person's not wrestling with that question. Because humility says, look, not only am I going to know my place in this world, I'm going to accept my assignment, and I'm going to be sober-minded knowing, yes, there are people who are smarter than me. There are people who are stronger than me. There are people who are faster than me. There are people who are cooler than me. There are people different from me who have a multiplicity of gifts where I might have my one singular talent, but in humility, I'm going to accept whatever God has given me, and I'm going to use it for his glory in my life. I'm going to steward my talents well. In humility, we learn not to compare and contrast ourselves with other people. In humility, we accept our assignment from God and we, we embrace the life that God has given to us. Some people's lives are harder than others. Some people's lives seem easier than others. Whatever the case may be, whatever life you've been given, you're going to humbly recognize that God is God and that ultimately God is good and you're going to steward your life in a humble way for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. So this is humility of knowing your place and accepting your assignment. And I wonder if you've seen or discerned this type of dynamic in the life and ministry of Jesus. Where would you go to find this operative in Jesus? Well, I would take you to Philippians chapter 2. Listen to how Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2 as it relates to his humility. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, he knew his place when he stepped in the world. He stepped in the world as a servant. Then he goes on, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus accepted his assignment, Jesus was humble. And he calls those of us who identify with Christ, who've been united with him, to be humble, to clothe ourselves in humility. And it starts by knowing our place and accepting our assignment. But then he goes on, and that fourth virtue listed there is a word word that might uh, cause the tough guys in the room to kind of squirm a little bit. He says, gentleness. Now, when you read the word gentleness, or maybe your translation says meekness, Understand that gentleness or meekness, whatever your translation might say, it does not mean weakness. It does not mean that you begin to live a life as kind of in a doormat fashion where everybody's walking all over you and you lose your spine, becoming a type of jellyfish that's easily pushed around and molded by your environment and impressed upon by everything around you. That's not what it means to be gentle. The word translated gentleness, if we're going to consider it in the life of Jesus, which we should, uh, we'll be able to see a little bit about what gentleness is about in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. There's a moment where Jesus is talking about himself, and oddly enough, this is the only word Jesus ever uses in reference to himself to describe himself. Meaning, Jesus never says to people, Hey, I am loving, although he was loving. He never said to people, Hey, I am holy, although he was holy. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he actually describes himself with this virtue, with this grace. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, I am gentle. Now, who among us is going to stand up and say Jesus was weak? Who among us is going to stand up and say Jesus didn't have a spine? No, Jesus was gentle, and he calls us to be gentle too, and we consider what gentleness means. What we're talking about This dynamic of being the most powerful person in the universe and yet constraining your power in productive ways. Jesus was power under control. Jesus was tough and tender. Jesus was gentle. I got a picture of this last week when I took my family to uh, a farm over on the Olympic Peninsula. And this farm was kind of an odd place. I've never been to any place like it. But essentially they allow you to take your car and go on a type of safari where you're driving through the farm with your windows rolled down and there are herds of animals at this farm. And as they see a car, they're trained, look, there's a car, there's food. So they just kind of rush your car and they start sticking their big faces into your windows. I'm talking llamas, I'm talking bison, I'm talking uh, elk. And then the biggest and most intimidating of all was a buffalo. Buffalo was kind of on the back end of the Of the journey, and when we got to the place of the buffalo, all these buffalo came to our car, and they were the same size as my car. And I'm just thinking, they're gonna, they're gonna crush us. And then, as we had our windows rolled down, one of the buffalo stuck his head into the driver's, the passenger's seat up front, and seated there was my wife and our two-year-old daughter Adeline. And I'm looking over there, thinking, oh, that buffalo is gonna, about to eat my kid. (laughs) He could, he's big enough. But instead of eating Adeline, he took his big, long tongue and licked her head, just slopped it on her head, matted her hair over. And and I remember thinking, that's strength under control. That's gentleness. So you want an image for what it means to be gentle? Think about the buffalo, right? (laughs) These big, massive animals that could crush you, but they won't. They're gentle. They're kind. They lick babies, that's the imagery here. It's strength under control, and and when I think about this, and you think about it, better yet, instead of thinking about a buffalo, you think about Jesus. You think about him being a. Gen- I guess he's better than a buffalo. Uh, you think about him. Think about how this played out in his life. Jesus was a gentle one, and he knew when it was appropriate for him to walk into a temple and ki- a temple and kick over tables. Right. But he also knew when it was appropriate for him to get on a knee and receive kids to him gladly. So he received children with joy. He didn't scare kids away. And he could kick over tables in the temple. That's gentleness. That's Jesus. It's being tough and tender. If you've ever met a gentle person, (coughs) excuse me, a gentle person is someone who can step into your life and they can maybe give you a critique or a correction. And all the while they are critiquing you or correcting you, not once do you feel condemned by them. That's gentleness. That's the type of man I want to be. That's the type of father I want to be. When I'm correcting my kids, when I'm critiquing my kids, when I'm disciplining my kids better yet, I want them to never interpret that or receive that as condemnation I want them to always receive it as redemptive, as for their good. That's what gentleness looks like from a parental perspective. And I'm sure you can think of ways that gentleness can show up in your friendships and in your relationships and in your interactions with other people. But then he moves on to the fifth virtue there. He moves from gentleness to patience. And this might be the hardest one. I'll take that back. They're all challenging, but patience is a challenging one because patience has to do with people. The reason why patience is so hard is because our patience is tried by people. People test our patience. And when our patience is tested and when it is lacking, what does it do? It causes us to lash out at others. It causes us to grow embittered towards others. But a patient person who's dressed with the virtue or the grace of patience, they know what it means to kind of stay calm and to have a long, long, long wick with people. You see, a patient person is someone who isn't driven to cynicism by the church's sin. A patient person isn't someone who becomes despairing when they notice all that is wrong with the church today. If you've been tempted this year to assess the state of the American church and Grow cynical or grow despairing? Chances are you've lost your patience. But patience is this virtue that allows us to bear with one another, right? It allows us to be long-suffering in our relationships. It doesn't mean that we accept sin hook, line, and sinker. It doesn't mean that we sit at peace with the state of the church. If the church has race problems, it doesn't mean we ignore them and we don't call them out. But it does mean that as we're calling them out and as we're pressing in to reconcile race relations within the church today, we're going to do it with patience. And in the the grind that is racial reconciliation, we're not going to grow cynical and we're not going to grow despairing thinking that the church is hopeless. We're not going to bell on the church. We're going to bear with the church. That's what patient people do. Do you think Jesus ever wanted to bell on the disciples? Do you think there were moments when he was tempted to, to, towards impatience, when his disciples just weren't picking up what he was putting down? When he's teaching them about the nature of the kingdom, and yet they're wanting to talk about who's going to be the greatest between themselves? Do you think he was ever tempted to grow impatient when the kids are coming to him and he's wanting to receive them and they're actually thinking these kids are going to annoy Jesus and they try to prevent children from coming to Jesus? Do you ever think Jesus was tempted to lose patience with his disciples? Well, what about the moments when Jesus is telling his disciples that he must go to the cross and give his life there as a sacrifice of atonement and Peter would object, no, no, Jesus, this can't be true of you. Do you think Jesus was ever tempted to lose his patience? He might have been tempted to, but he never did, did he? Sure, Jesus was tempted in every way in sin, just as we are, but he resisted temptation. He remained obedient, which means he never lost patience. He didn't lose patience with his disciples, and here's the good news for you. He's not losing patience with you. You may have lost patience with yourself, but Jesus hasn't given up on you. He's committed to bearing with you. He's committed to bearing with his people, and he calls you to bear with his people too. This is why the move from verse 12 into verse 13 starts dealing with conflicts in community and starts dealing with these dynamics because patience kind of flows into bearing with one another. And then he goes one step further and talks about forgiving one another. He says, If anyone has a grievance against another, be forgiving. And so bearing with one another and forgiving one another, all of this flows from a patient disposition that says, I'm not going to grow cynical and I'm not going to grow despairing. I'm not going to bail on relationships. I'm not going to bail on the church. I'm going to bear with relationships. I'm going to bear with the church. That's what patient people do. That's what maturation in the faith does. And so we want to dress ourselves in these graces so that we can do these dynamics Essentially, all of these graces are to be fleshed out in community. You can't really grow as a compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient person. You can't really grow in that way apart from relationships, apart from community. That's why if you ever really want to mature in your faith, you're not going to mature in isolation. The only way you can mature in these directions is if you're put in a context where your compassion is challenged, where your gentleness is challenged, where your humility is challenged. The only way you're gonna mature as gospel-saturated men and women is by sinking into community and taking the risks that come with community that say, somebody might offend me, or I might offend them. Chances are, if you've never been offended in the church yet, don't lose patience. One day you will be, right? (laughs) Bear with it. Hang in there. We're in this thing together and we are all in process together. None of us are perfect. Every one of us is progressing in our faith, but we're not fully arrived. And so we want to bear with each other in the process. And another beautiful thing about patience is that patience says, look, you may offend me. Or patience, when you begin to grow in this grace, suddenly you are not as easily offended as you once were. Not everything is going to bother you like it once did. Not every slight is going to be held and harbored in your heart very long. You're going to allow things to kind of roll off your back because you're, going to, you're bearing with people, and you have a disposition that says, I'm going to be quick to forgive other people. You may get offended in the church. Are you willing to forgive? Are you willing to put on the character of Christ who forgave us? Isn't this where Paul goes? He says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also are to." Forgive. Now, that sounds crazy. How did Jesus forgive you? Well, he forgave you comprehensively, right? He forgave everything about you. And he forgave you limitlessly, right? He's still forgiving you. You, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are a forgiven person. And if that is true in how God relates to you... The challenge is this is how you are to relate to other people because forgiven people forgive people. And if you're harboring bitterness, if you're harboring resentment, if you're harboring grudges, chances are you've lost sight of the fact that you too are forgiven. And when you lose sight of that identity, that self-understanding, you're never going to be able to issue and extend forgiveness to to other people. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to tackle forgiveness in a more uh, kind of square way in the future, so we'll just kind of move on. So there's the challenge about forgiveness, and then he goes on. He says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, love is what pulls all these strings together. Love is what holds us together in unity. Love is what keeps the community together, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Now, let's just step back. I mean, I don't know how this passage is hitting you right now, but these are some lofty challenges. These are expectations God has given to his people right now. You are expected to be a compassionate person. You are expected to be a kind person, a humble person, a gentle person, a patient person. You are expected to bear with the church and not bail on the church. You are expected to forgive as you have been forgiven. These are expectations. How do you wrestle with those? Well, I'll encourage you to consider the night Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane and he began to wrestle with what was expected of him. And he goes into the Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that the cross was imminent, that he would soon be arrested, he would soon be tried, he would soon be crucified, that he would die as the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. But he didn't go to the cross easily, so to speak. He went to the cross through the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he wept through the will of the Father as he wrestled with what was expected of him. But as he prayed all night, wrestling with these expectations, what did he do in the end? He stood up and he put on love and he gave himself to crucifixion. He put on love, which was able to take his compassion, which was able to take his kindness, his humility, his gentleness, which was willing to take his patience and his long-suffering and his, willing, his desire to forgive. He put on love, which wrapped all of these virtues together in his person, and he went to the cross to give his life for our sake. He went to give his life on the cross so that he might dress you and I up in those very same graces. And no doubt, as you journey with Jesus, there are going to be nights where you enter into your own garden of Gethsemane, and you begin to wrestle with what is expected of you, and you begin to wrestle with what it means to forgive someone who's offended you. You're going to wrestle with what it means to bear with the people of God, even though the people of God may be imperfect in the world that is. You're going to wrestle with these expectations, and as you do, go the way of Jesus, always in the end, choose love. Put on love, which pulls all of these virtues together in your person, pulls all of these virtues together in your character. And as you choose love, understand that love isn't, isn't a sentiment. Love is sacrifice. Love is service. Love is a choice. It is a choice long before it, was, it is ever an emotion. And so we want to put on love. That's how we wrestle with these expectations. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the question becomes, well, how do, we, how do we put on love regularly? Is there anything that we can do to kind of cultivate these virtues, to cultivate this character in our lives? And, and honestly, there is. There is something that you can do. And Paul tells us in verses 16 and 17, where he begins to talk about our worship, the way you and I grow into the character of Christ is by worshiping Jesus together. One thing that is true about human nature everywhere is that human beings inevitably become like who or what they're worshiping. So if you find these graces lacking in your life, it may be because you're not worshiping Jesus You may be worshiping a caricature of Jesus, a cultural expression of Jesus, but you're not worshiping perhaps the compassionate and the kind and the humble and the gentle and the patient and the long-suffering and the forgiving Jesus of the gospel. The dynamic of worship in the human heart is that we will inevitably become like who we worship. This is why there's this refrain in verses 16 and 17 where Paul says, Now let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do you cultivate the character of Christ? You do it by worshiping Jesus in the context of community. And you allow these features of our worship to flourish as you gather This is why churches have been gathering together in this, not in this exact type of way, obviously, but churches have always met together to worship Jesus. They've always gathered together to focus on the word, to let the word of Christ dwell among them richly. They've always gathered together to admonish and to teach and to instruct one another. They've always always gathered together to sing together. This is one thing that's always been true of God's people in the world. It was true in the Old Testament when immediately after the people of Israel are redeemed from Egyptian slavery and they walk across the Red Sea, what's the first thing they do? They pull, they come together, and they sing a song. They sing together. Why? Because that's what saved people do. When we see ourselves in the light of the gospel and we begin to put on the character of Christ, growing in these graces, we're going to worship Jesus together. And when we gather together, what are we going to do? We're going to focus on the word of Christ. We're going to allow the gospel to saturate our gatherings. This is why we spend so much time focusing on the scriptures. We want the word of Christ to dwell richly among us. This is why as we take the gospel in, in that way, we also think the gospel through. With wisdom and admonishment and teaching, we're trying to discern, well, how does this apply to my life? How is this to be fleshed out in our community? That's why we do what we do every time we gather together at this time and in this space. But it's also why we sing together. We turn the gospel out by responding to these realities in song. And we sing old songs, we sing new songs, whatever the song is. We want to sing songs that are saturated with these realities because that's what we do as the people of God. You know, one of the earliest descriptions of the church that we have on record was a Roman governor writing a letter to the Roman emperor, and he was describing the church, or the Christians in his era, in his area. And he was blown away because, listen to what he says. He said in this letter, he said that these Christians, they meet at dawn. How early is dawn? Dawn is early, right? They meet at dawn, and what do they do? They sing a hymn to Christ as God. Singing has always been a part of the church's DNA. It's always been what we do when we gather together. This is why, again, in Hebrews chapter 10, you were told, do not give up meeting together. Do not neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other. Press into these realities. This is how you put on the character of Christ is by worshiping Christ together. We will ultimately become like who we worship. We will ultimately become like who we worship. And so we gather to study the scriptures. We gather to sing. And then notice where he goes in verse 17. When it's all said and done, we then scatter to serve, right? That's the rhythm of the Christian gathering. We gather, study, sing, and we scatter to serve. So in verse 17, he hits the note about our daily activities. Whatever you do, what is whatever? Whatever is whatever. Whatever you do, that's a lot. Whether you're shopping for groceries whether you're putting your kids to bed at night, whether you're having an extended conversation long into the night with your roommates, whatever the case may do, what it be, whatever you were doing, you were going to do it all in word or in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. All of a sudden, do you understand what's happening? The gospel-saturated life that starts turning the gospel out begins to see that all of life is sacred. All of a sudden, the divide between the sacred and the secular doesn't exist. Everything you do as a man or a woman who is in Christ is sacred activity. It is worshipful activity. It is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus with an awareness of his presence, with an awareness of his provision, with an awareness of his power, so that you're doing it all with gratitude and joy. This means that there's nothing you are doing on a daily basis that is ultimately mundane. It all matters. Every second, every act, everything you do, you are to do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The gospel-saturated life is a sacred life where we are putting on the character of Christ in light of our self-understanding, and we are worshiping together because we become like who we worship, so we're worshiping Jesus together. And then we're scattering to serve in ways that turn the gospel out, blessing our neighbors, exercising compassion, showing patience, walking in humility, being gentle, being kind, living lives that would honor Jesus in the city of Seattle. We're turning the gospel out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider these truths tonight? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir our hearts in response to these realities and that you would give us grace to turn the gospel out over these next few moments by singing together. I pray that we would worship you, Jesus, in spirit and in truth, and we would worship you in a way that would produce, that would honor you, yes, but would also help us to put on these graces. I pray that every time we gather together and spend these moments together, I pray that each time would push us further in Jesus' direction, that we would look more like Jesus every time we leave this space than we did when we entered this space. God, would you enrich our lives in this way? Would you administer our souls in these ways? God, we ask and we pray for the gospel to be taken in, for the gospel to be thought through, And for the gospel to be turned out in Jesus' name.